0: From the darkest reaches of space, to the deepest corners of your mind. your mind. Welcome
1: to From the Void. I once asked the question, what if you found out that your father not only committed murder but what if he turned out to be potentially one of the most prolific serial killers of all time? What would you do? How would you react? How might it change the ways in which you view the world? And what if, what you thought was his first murder was only the tip of the iceberg? What if you found countless potential victims going back decades? What do you do with that sort of information? The love for a parent is so incredibly strong. In death, can you separate a father from his horrific hidden life? Do you lie awake at night worrying that perhaps somewhere deep and dormant hides the same dark passenger? This week, we welcome back retired detective and best-selling author Steve Hodell to talk about his new books, The Early Years, The Further Serial Crimes of George Hill Hodell MD. Welcome to this week's mystery, The Black Dahlia Avenger, The Early Years, on From the Void. All right, welcome back to the podcast. I'm so excited to have Steve Hodel back on with me. Thank you for joining me again. Good to be back with you, John. Absolutely. So last time we talked, it was season two, uh, and we talked about the fact that you were coming out with some new material on the early murders, uh, that, that you link your dad to. And so, uh, I think when we spoke, it was originally going to be one book and ended up being two books. So tell me about the, you, you obviously do meticulous research, which is why I love your, your research, your books, because you dig deep. Um, so tell me about what happened that that resulted in, uh, two books as opposed to one.
0: Okay. Well, actually, uh, I got to catch you up We're, we're actually, it's been, it's now eight books. Eight <laughs> Wow but <laughs> I thought I started out of course with uh, you know this whole thing began as many of your listeners may know who any any have read my books, is that I, it started out with my father's death back in 1999 and I can't believe it, but it's now what 23 years later. yeah and um, it's the last my most recent books in the early years, which I just published, Uh, some months ago, uh, is actually uh, books uh, seven and eight. (laughs) And as you say, I thought this would be book two, the early years. Uh, I did, you know, I started out uh, with Black Dahlia Avenger. And of course, as you may remember, I was confident my father had nothing to do with this. And I was going to show you know, with my background and stuff, I, I said, hey, in 10 seconds, I could show you he had nothing to do with it. Once I found out he was an actual suspect after his death. And I made the mistake of following the evidence. <laughs> the doors kept opening. And uh, about a year and a half into it, almost two years later, uh, it was pretty much a, a dead bag case against him as being the actual suspect on Elizabeth Short, at the Black Dahlia, which was that Infamous murder from 1947. So, as I was investigating that the, that murder, of course, I was doing a, a, a deep uh, background search in regards to LA and its history. And of course, some of these crimes started popping up from from the 40s and the 30s and the 20s. And I said, "What? You know, no, there's no way uh, that he could be connected to these." But I was informed. I didn't know they existed. You know, that was way before my time. But I became aware of these crimes as infamous who Uh And I, by the time I got finished with my investigation, I said, you know, I'm going to have to take a, another deep dive back into these early years uh, because it's a lot of them sound like his crime signature, his M.O. So that'll maybe be book two, but I'll you know I'll get into that later. So I came out with Black Dahlia Avenger in two thousand three, and um, uh, then I said, okay, I'll uh, I'll start with uh, the early years. But actually, on the way, much to my surprise, once I got into the Dahlia investigation, I realized that he was responsible for a. A number of serial crimes in the 40s, uh, which I named the LA Lone Woman Murders. There was actually about a dozen murders uh, be- just before and just after the uh, Black Dahlia murder in 47. So I got into those and that took me into uh, Black Dahlia Venture 2, uh, a second book, uh, because it was just too much. So I came out and I basically presented the evidence that, in fact, not only did he do kill the Black Dahlia, but he also was good for a dozen different serial crimes in the L.A. area just before and after. So I got that book out. Then, um, let's see, let me think about the order here. So then uh, there was a the Black Dahlia Avenger 3. And again, a lot of this information I got from readers. You know, it was amazing armchair detectives, and they would send me an email and say, hey, Steve, what about this, and what about this? And that would open doors into not only more evidence, but also other crimes. And I got an email uh, from a woman uh, in uh, Chicago, and uh, she said, you know, I was going through my mother's belongings, after she just recently passed. And there was an unopened letter there that was written by my grandfather back in 1949. And it lays out your father as the killer of the Black Dahlia. So here we have an unopened three page handwritten letter uh, basically uh, saying, I was friends with Dr. George Hill Hodell. I was also an informant for LAPD, a paid informant for LAPD, and he, he killed Elizabeth Short and also another uh, another crime uh, that he mentions that uh, he, he knew the victim and George knew the victim. So that was like a wow moment, you know, another huge confirmation. Um, so I wrote it. That was BDA 3. I needed to include that, so I added that on. And, um So then I said, okay, I'm going to get into the early years now. And I realized one of the crimes was, which is a separate book called In the Mesquite. And that documents um, a double homicide in Texas that I believe my father did uh, in 1938. And I was going to have that as the last of the early years crimes, but it was too much. It it was more than a chapter. There's no way I could do it in a chapter. So actually, I wrote a separate book on that in the mesquite, and it documents and lays out all of the evidence connecting George O'Dell to the mother-daughter kidnap, a very brutal, horrific murder. It's actually uh, the Texas Rangers consider it one of their most infamous unsolves. So I, I came out with that and presented that in a separate book. And I said, okay, I guess now I can jump into the early years. And um, much to my surprise, there was what I thought would be one book. Uh, It was just too much there, so it became two books. And uh, so there's volume one, or edition one, the early years, part one, is the 1920s. And then volume two is the 1930s. And, uh, you know, I was a little... little concerned because it's like, oh, there he goes again. You know, where's he going to go next? The grassy knoll, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But basically, uh, as I see it now, uh, my father, Dr. George Hill O'Dell, really began amazingly in his teens was his first, I believe, was his first killing as a teenager. And uh, he continued on and was never stopped through the 20s, through the 30s, through the 40s and then jumped into the 60s with, you know, about Zodiac. And, uh, you know, I was very reluctant to go there. And uh, those were the other two books before the early years. I got sucked into uh, doing uh, basically two books, Most Evil 1 and Most Evil 2. And uh, as bizarre as it sounds, you know, um, basically... I, I had no choice. I was pulled into, look, I knew nothing about Zodiac. I mean, I knew it was a famous unsolved in San Francisco, but I was, we had Manson at the same time in Los Angeles and I was, you know, I, I wasn't paying much attention to that other than I, I knew it was a serial killer up there. Didn't know any of the details or anything. So, um, maybe I should tell you how I, here's how I got sucked into that. I was basically one of George's crime signatures, his M.O.s, was posing bodies off street signs. Okay. And uh, I talk talk about the Chicago, the three Chicago lipstick murders. And those were two adult murders he did in Chicago in pre-Dahlia, just a year before. And there were three victims, two adults and one child. And an eight-year-old by the name of Suzanne Degnan, D-E-G-N-A-N. And uh, they had a suspect on those, a guy named William Hirams, a teenager. And I said, "Well, that case was solved, but then I started looking into it and s- saying, "Well wait a minute here." Apparently it was a, he was a teenager. it was a forced confession. Uh, he was, he was uh, tortured for a number of days um, and threatened and eventually basically forced. Of course Chicago, like L.A., but was very corrupt back then. They had a lot of bad actors on the department. And um, basically it was a huge crime, these three L.A., uh, these three Chicago crimes, and they needed to get it solved. So they they had about four or five suspects before uh, they focused on irons and basically forced him to t- testify. There was no trial, no evidence presented. He pled guilty. He was sent to prison served 64 years in prison, died in prison. I went back and actually talked to him. I I met him in prison and went back and talked to him. And clearly there was a a lot of evidence and an uproar back then that he was innocent by a lot of people. But, um, you know, they did things very different back then. And he was sent away and, and died in prison after 64 years. Heartbreaking to meet this guy. Knowing my father was good for it. I mean, there was a whole bunch of things that was. They were the coroner there was absolutely sure that the little girl was killed by a skilled surgeon. There was a hemicorporectomy performed on her by de- dividing the body in half, and um, uh, the body was posed in the streets. You know, a whole bunch of stuff that very similar to the his later year later uh, Dahlia murder. Anyway, um, but on that, to get back to the street signs, on that, uh, he posed the body off a street uh, named, uh, body parts off a street named uh, Hollywood. Okay, come on, Steve, that's a bit of a stretch. Yeah, he's from Hollywood, so big deal. So fast forward a year to the Dahlia murder, hemicorporectomy, the same operation performed on a little girl. He, um, uh, Dad poses the body on a vacant lot off a street named Degnan, right? D-E-G-N-N. I'd never even heard that name before. Wow. And again, it, you know, so I said, well, geez, you know, that's, that's impressive. But, um, and I, of course, included that. So then um, three weeks after the Dahlia murder is one of his L.A. Lone, another L.A. lone woman murder. And that was Jean French. And he poses her body off a street named Mountain View. And three weeks, uh, three weeks before uh, Elizabeth Short was buried in Oakland, her, her family had her transport up there. She was buried at a cemetery. The name of the cemetery: Mountain View. <laughs> so I get, I said, "Oh, come on, Steve! You know he's playing these games." Um, so then. I discover that, uh, of course he didn't he went, he fled the country and went to Manila. Well, in fast forward to the sixties in 1967, he, uh, there's a, uh, Dahlia, similar Dahlia like murder committed in Manila. It's two blocks from dad's house. So am corporectomy, the body's divided the Coroner there said it had to have been a skilled surgeon. And, um, the body parts are posed on a vacant lot just like they were with Dahlia off a street named Zodiac. And I said, What? You know, so that got, kind of got my attention. And I said, Well, I don't know anything about Zodiac. So I got into Zodiac and I start got into the weeds of it. I said, Well, there's there's no way Zodiac was like 25 or 30 or something. Dad was 60. That there's no way. Well, once I got into researching it, I came up with two additional law enforcement composites on Zodiac that were picture perfect to George Odell. And I discovered the best witness was a, an officer, Fook, uh, with uh, SFP, San Francisco Police Department. And he, and he did this composite and said the guy was 35 to 45, but more like the high end. So, 45 could even 46 or 7 or 8. Yeah. Well, Dad was 60, but he looked 45, and the composite drawing is picture perfect. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. It's picture perfect to George O'Dell, glasses and everything. So I put that together, and I came out with most evil, uh, which was, and I didn't say he, he did it. I said, you know, there's enough here, enough evidence here. to Let's take a look. Let's do DNA. Okay. And then uh, again, another reader, another email comes along. It's a high school teacher from France, and he says, "And there, were, of course, Zodiac was famous for sending in taunting notes, letters, cryptograms, ciphers, all sorts of stuff, which of course Dad had done throughout his career, earlier career, sending notes and catch me if you can." Uh, anyway, and the same voice, the same handwriting, and this French high school teacher. Eve Persone contacts me and says the cipher, the symbol that he signed his, signed his name with on one of the letters, uh, he says it's ancient Oum language, the alphabet, uh, which was an ancient Celtic alphabet. And he says there are five letters. And he says the five letters are H O D E L. <laughs> that got my attention. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, basically, uh, and I came up with a lot more evidence to the linkage and stuff. And I came out with Most Evil 2, which says, yeah, he did do it, and here's why. It lays it out. So, those two books popped up in between. And then, eventually, I got to the early years. I says, okay. I took a deep breath, and I said, it's time to take a look at these 1920s and 30s crimes. So you know, basically uh book one, uh, part one, does a lot of biographical information on my grandparents, his parents, his father and mother, and um, maybe we can do a little bit on that. They were uh, George uh, Goldgifter was his name. He was born in Kiev, Russia. And um, he, at age 21, uh, of course he was Jewish, and at age 21 they were in Inscripted into the arm, Tsar's the army, and it was, they were like almost like slaves. It was a terrible life. So George determined to get out of town, and uh, he disguised himself as a, a uh, he was pretending to go see his sick uh, grandmother and uh, got on the train, and he writes this amazing essay called Escape. And uh, he lays out how, exactly how he did it, what he went through, how he was almost caught. But he makes it across, into the, across the Polish line and goes on, uh, and it just assumes the name Odell. I think it's a fairly common Swiss name. At any rate, he assumes the name Odell, goes on to Paris, where he meets this uh, attractive young woman by the name of Esther Leoff. She's from. She was born in Russia, uh, apparently of royalty. I haven't been able to exactly nail that down, but um, uh, and she she was a Russian and she was a dentist in Paris in 1901. Amazing, you know, very unusual for a, a woman to be a dentist in Paris at that stage age. And uh, so they fall in love and they get married and they come through Ellis Island. Uh, back in 1903 I think it was and they're in New York for a short time then they come west to Los Angeles and George there's, they have one son he's George Hodel Jr. and uh, he's born in 1907 and then uh, you know I've spent I can't recall if we did his bio on, on an earlier podcast with you or not but it was uh, I don't know if we want to go through it, his bio or not, but it's pretty amazing. Indiv- not pretty, an exceptionally amazing individual.
1: Yeah, talk talk a little th- bit of. Well, I think I think what might be interesting is to talk a little bit about. Uh, obviously, we we talked about the fact that he was a brilliant uh, brilliant mind, very very smart, very intelligent. Um, right. I think we okay. talked about obviously his training as a doctor, but what, what's really interesting, and you dive deeper, I think, into this in these early books is. Uh, his even, you know, going back further in his childhood, he was a prodigy and there are a lot of interesting things that kind of set him up to, to kind of understand the police system and, and crime and all these sorts of things, uh, from his essays to his ride along. So talk a little bit about, yeah. So, and, and talk a little bit about his parents too, cause uh, you, you kind of wonder anytime we come across a serial killer, what was their childhood like? You know, was he, was it abusive? Was it fairly normal? What was that like?
0: Yeah, well, again, uh, you're right. I mean, as a a child, of course, at at age six, he started playing piano. And by age nine, he was a child prodigy pianist playing his own concerts at the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles. Uh, Highly gifted. His teacher, his music teacher, said he's going to go far as a pianist. Um, Very high IQ. He tested out at 186 one point above Einstein that, that skips a generation, but my, my boys are in good shape. And, and, um, he, uh, his parents, his father was an, uh, an accountant, uh, got into real estate sales. His mother, um, and I try and look at a number of these triggers and it's, it's a bit difficult, but, uh, his mother was, a also brilliant mind. Um, but also very controlling, um, and he was very much like, a, let's say, a little Lord Fauntleroy type. You know, she saw him as, you know, uh, far, far better than any other child around in his age, which, which in many respects he was. But he was extremely pampered, but she was also very controlling. I write in the books about one incident that my mom told me. He said, you know, your father really hated his mother. I said, why would he hate his mother? And she said, well, she was very controlling and... She gave me an example that he had, dad had told her. He said, apparently, uh, he came in after his practice, a piano practice and said, Mom, can I go out and play baseball with the boys now? She said, no, Georgie, you're a pianist, not a baseball player. You'll hurt your hands. That kind of thing. Um, and uh, I think also incest. I suspect there was sexual abuse uh, either from his mother or from some other family member. Um, what we know is he turned when he grew up he turned into a, a real monster, a misogynist of the highest order, a sadist um, not only did he take pleasure in his killings but he took pleasure in the torturing and the beating and the slow killing um, he was also a nihilist he hated humanity uh, I think probably congenital insanity uh, is part of it Um uh, he was rejected not only by his peers and his stu- fellow students because he was so far much more advanced than them. Uh, I mean, he went to Caltech at age 14. Actually, he just turned 15. Uh, he went entered Caltech uni- University um, uh, two or three years ahead of his, his age group. Um, and, of course, I think he was rejected. He was probably what we call today a super nerd, you know, And (laughs) uh, I think he was rejected on on many counts, many fronts. So all of this came together kind of in a perfect storm to create this this uh, hatred of humanity, hatred of people and stuff. But he was also extremely handsome, extremely charming, uh, highly educated, uh, extremely well read you know, he knew everything and anything. And he had this ability when he he would walk into a room and and everybody would gravitate to him and he would, it would be like you're in the presence of the Pope. He had that kind of charisma and charm and he could speak on anything at length. And, um, so, I mean, I was, you know, I loved my father. I I was, you know, enamored with his amazing abilities and, um, uh, Never suspected that there might be this monster inside of him, and that's the other thing that uh, we see in a number of his mailings and notes. He cries out, "Help me! I can't stop this thing inside of me." He actually, uh, you know, comes out and says it in his in his writings to some of the police after his crimes. And I think it was very much like a, a, a very much like a uh, Jekyll and Hyde. You know, I always thought that was more, a nice, interesting. Uh, fiction, but actually, uh, you know, it, it was true with George. I mean, the you you, you love the doc. I love the Doctor Jekyll, the charming, amazing man that could do anything. And then there was, and I was unaware of this, Mister Hyde, this monster inside of him. So he, you know, that's what begin for whatever it started out very early. And actually, in the early years, the first crime I look at, he was fourteen. And you say, how is this possible? Well, you got to remember, there's probably a mental age there of 35 or so. And a 14-year-old back in 1921 was not the same as a 14-year-old today. They were driving cars. They were you know, doing a lot of the things that you wouldn't expect of a 14-year-old. Uh, and he was so advanced. So his first murder in the early years, the first one I present, is... Uh, I believe he killed a priest in up in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, Dr. Father Heslin. And that was a kidnap uh, shooting. He actually shot him in the head. And um, it was a ruse. He drove up, said, my, my friend is dying. I need you to do the last rites. So the father in this small town in Colma, actually, Colma, California, gets his... Last writes st- stuff together and goes with him in the car, never comes back. And he's found later uh, shot and buried in a shallow grave not, not too far away. Um, and again, I, that was his, actually, that was his first zodiac killing um, mm. in the sense that he taunts the police, he writes letters, he sends them to the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, and uh, there's very much a lot of the signatures that will come later in the zodiac crimes so it, it's pretty amazing um and then we go we go on there are actually four crimes in the 20s that he commits and on the Degnan crime that bothered me a lot because I had no child murders uh, before and it's like you know why 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 is there just this one child murder well sadly there's not in the early years there's actually six child murders yeah, and and uh, in the twenties and thirties, and um, very much following his own his same signature and stuff, uh, writing to the press the letters his handwriting and on and on. Um, so there's the four in the twenties, and then there's I think uh, I think we got I think there's like another sixteen in the thirties, and. Once we get into the '30s, so he's committing he's committing these crimes in Bay Area, but most of them are in the LA area. He comes back to Los Angeles and um, uh, begins uh, a series of crimes with again child murders, and again it's writing taunting the police. One of them, uh, one of the child murders, is very close—just a few months from the Lindbergh kidnap murder. Well, of course, Lindbergh was headlines for weeks, you know, and uh, the trial and everything. And uh, uh, I think, his, again, the superego, he says, well, they didn't get away with it, but I can. So he does a copycat Lindbergh murder of uh, uh, two little girls, leaves them in a culvert, just like the Lindbergh boy was uh, found. And it's, but basically, that is actually solved. The LAPD or the DA's office actually hires this uh, uh, Europe, European detective and he gets on the case. Uh, it's a doctor, I'm blanking on his name right now, but anyway, he's, uh, uh, he's known as the Ferret of Europe.
1: <laughs> Interesting nickname. <laughs>
0: and he gets on it, and he takes up lodging in the Biltmore Hotel, which is the brand new Biltmore Hotel of all places. Of course, that's that's where Elizabeth Short was last seen leaving out of in the forties. Anyway, he uh, he gets on it, and he says, "I I've solved it." and He comes up with two names of two individuals, and he gives he says, "And this is why," and he connects it. Again, to the Lindbergh, he thinks it's a copycat for the Lindbergh, and he actually gives the two names. Well, the names are never released, and I'm very confident that if they, you know, they probably have been disposed of like everything else has in my findings, but um, I'm very confident those two names would have been George O'Dell and Fred Sexton, and Sexton is an accomplice of his in many of his crimes throughout the time and he leaves and flees to Mexico when dad leaves and flees to Hawaii. And, uh, so basically, um, I think that they were given the name, given the names and, uh, for, for whatever reason, why they never are released and uh, never followed up on. And, uh, so that, uh, then we get into the thirties and, um, what I discover is, well, another. There are a lot of a lot of uh, very infamous unsolved crimes that I look at. Uh, some very well known ones that are long forgotten, but were prominent in headlines for weeks and months. There's a number of crimes in the early years, again, like like uh, irons that are, you know, an innocent person is convicted. Um, Tragically, one of the most heartbreaking is, um, on one of dad's crimes, uh, they pick up a, um, 32 year old man who's a crossing guard and they, uh, basically get him to confess again, torture, threatening words. Um, he's got an IQ of 65, uh, and basically, uh, the cops say, "You know, look. Either you confessed it, and there's a mob outside of the courthouse yelling and chanting to hang him, yelling out his name." And the detectives say, "Well, look. You have it. Well, you have a choice. Either you confess, or we'll let you go out there and talk to those people." So this, you know, uh, poor guy, poor guy, is says, "Okay, yeah, I did it." And of course, he's not able to tell them anything about what actually happened. These are three little girls that were kidnapped, raped, and brutally murdered in the nearby hills in Los Angeles, in Inglewood, known as the Inglewood Babes. And, uh, of course, the description is perfect for George. They have composites that look just like he did back then. And they have witnesses, little girls in the park, who who saw them with two men drive off. Anyway, uh, this poor Guy, his name is Dyer, and, and Dyer is uh, tried, convicted, and hung, uh, executed for a crime that he did not commit. And it's not just me saying he didn't commit it. Back then, there was a huge outrage of people, an uproar, and lots of uh, defense, uh, community defense people are going, saying, look, you you know, he didn't do this, you can't do this. And, you know, again, a lot of corruption so um, and then there's another case, another crime he does with, on another child kidnap, and a, an older security guard in his sixties is convicted. Fortunately, he's not hung. He's he gets life and eventually gets out after thirty years. But you know, basically, and and then we get into so that was what I thought would be book one book turns out to be two books and. It's just the—he uh, never stops. I mean, basically, uh, I discovered that there's a series of crimes in San Diego and uh, a serial killer. And in the 30s and the 40s, and San Diego PD has come up with this. They—they they have nine. They have connected nine of them. It's not Steve saying these are connected. It's San Diego saying these are connected. And of course, they didn't have the term serial killer back then. But uh, what they call them, they called them uh, chain, chain crimes, chain, chain, chain-related chain crimes. And they put these um, these together uh, in the thirties. Uh, again, children, young uh, young adults, woman, middle-aged woman. He's all over the map on on victim victims. There's no you know really. So they connect all of these, and incredibly, I'm reading, and and I find out that the San Diego detectives in the 40s that are taking over and have all of these serial crimes, they actually have a murder that I had included in uh, Black Dahlia Avenger, one of the lone woman murders, a San Diego murder of an adult who went to a dance hall and met this George. They leave together, and he kills her. Anyway, they think this is also one of the serial crimes. Even though it's nineteen forty-seven, they think it's related to their others. They actually San Diego PD actually comes to LAPD, says, "Hey, we think this crime is maybe connected to the Black Dahlia," you know, and and they and LAPD guys say, "Yeah, go away. No, no connection. Go away," you know not connected. And, um, so they do, you know, they go back and and it's forgotten. So even, you know, again, it's, it's, it's rewarding for me to have, you know, I I can talk for a hundred hours about how all of this comes together, but to have it verified or suspected by outside agent, actual law enforcement agencies is another, another matter. And, um, and that's, that's happened a number of times, so it's very rewarding. I guess, you know, and, and so basically the early years in the 20s and 30s cover, I think it's um, 20, I think it's 24 murders. Now, I'm not saying that he did all of these murders. I'm saying you decide, here's the evidence on every one of them, even though some of them are over, the evidence is overwhelming and I think would be Failable just based on what I have. Uh, I'm saying to the reader, you 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 decide. You know, uh, here they are. You know, he may be good for all of them. He may good for, be good for some of them. Um, and and uh, I, I leave it open. Some of the evidence is much much stronger on on some than others. Uh, <clears throat> let's see what else. I kind of see. I kind of see, Dad. I've come to this. I mean, so now we have 48 murders in 50 years. Uh, and I kind of see him like, a, I just recently, a few days ago, actually came up with this. I, I kind of see dad in a way as a, as a man-eating tiger and uh, on the loose. And he's going to keep killing until he's stopped or he dies or he's imprisoned. And I think that's what happened. He started in the twenties and never stopped. And uh, I came across a uh, article um, recently. Uh, it was co- "It's Called the Champawat Tiger." Have you ever heard of that? No, no, I hadn't either. And it's uh, he holds uh, the Champawat Tiger, also known as the Champawat Demon or the Champawat Devil. Um, it, he was a. It was a. Tigress on the loose in india and nepal and the and tiger tigress holds the world record for killings 436 documented victims wow over 7 years and finally they hired a uh, an englishman uh, jim corbett uh, who hunted it down finally and, and shot it and killed it well I don't want to get into the woo-woo of this, and I'm, I'm not supporting this. I'm just going to present the facts. The the tiger was shot and killed after seven years of killing, 436 victims. It was shot and killed in 1907. Dad was born in 1907. I'm not saying there's any connection, but you know, for, those, for those that are mystically or metaphysically inclined, did the spirit of the tigers enter him? I'll leave that for you to decide. <laughs> but uh, I just thought it was meaning, but my my point being that, you know, uh, the tiger and apparently what they discovered, uh, this Jim Corbett became a uh, conservationist and gave up his hunting values and, and became very supportive of animal, you know, uh, protection and stuff after that and what he discovered was that apparently the tigress had been had had a broken jaw and had been shot by someone or somewhere. And he, he believed that that was revenge, you know, this, that the tiger was actually a, a, became a revengeful killing, you know, machine. Uh, whether that's true or not, who knows? But we do know that the, the, the tigers did kill 436 people. And uh, until it was brought down, that was a seven-year span so I, I kind of see dad in that same light you know uh, for whatever reasons and we've talked about some of them uh, that caused him to become so hateful of humanity and of people uh, he began it and never stopped and just was this tiger roaming basically California although he did <laughs> didn't get to other places but most of his kills were in California northern and southern and uh You know, at this point, I've been through every possible emotion you can go through. Because I think it's very clear, I loved my father. I had tremendous respect for him. When I started out, I was confident I would be able to show he had nothing to do with these crimes. And then in following the evidence, uh, you know, it took me 180 degrees in the opposite direction. And, you know, I've been through every possible emotion you can think of. Anger, hatred... Uh, for this monster inside of him, uh, and now I'm just at a you know a point where it's just a terrible sadness. I mean, it's such a waste. With his intelligence and abilities, he could have cured cancer. He could have done so much for humanity. You know, and and sadly, he, he became this this monster instead. And uh, he was good at you know he was good at everything he did, and sadly. Right. Choosing this profession as a serial killer you know he he was well I I think he's probably right up there with one of the worst if I'm right and of course we know I'm right in many of the cases and uh, I'll, I'll leave it to uh, the reader to decide whether he's good for these and it, it could well be that he's good for half of them or more of them all of them I don't know but uh, the, you know some I have much stronger evidence than others. Uh, What else? I guess basically, uh, oh, the other thing is, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but we're coming out with a, um, a docu-series uh, on my books. Uh, this will be the first five. It'll be Dahlia, Lone Woman Murders, Zodiac, Manila, Lucilla Lou Murder in Manila, and the Chicago. So those are the first five books, so it'll include those. It'll probably be, I don't know, four or five part mini uh, docu series. So we hope to have that out next year, and uh, you know, my my uh, goal has always been to just get this out, and hopefully, it'll bring some kind of solace to the, the distant relatives. You know, all all of the living witnesses and victims' families are mostly gone now, but. They certainly have relatives and stuff, and I think just the knowing of who done it, you know, that, that brings some relief and uh, solace. It's not going to take away the pain and the anguish that they suffer, but it, but it will give some relief. And that's always been my goal has been to, to accomplish that.
1: Thanks for listening to part one of the Black Dolly Avenger, the early years. I'll be back next week with part two. If you enjoyed this or any of the previous episodes, please subscribe, rate, and review. And please tell a friend. Until next time, you've been listening to From the Void.